Good evening, Shabbat Tov, Mordim Lusimcha. Nice to see everybody here this evening. Hashanah Rabbah, getting together to learn some, uh, learn some Torah together. I'm sure people will be coming in as they're talking. Uh, please come inside, help yourself to a text. Please take some texts, take a sheet. Please come inside. I'd like to speak this evening about an, an individual of Moshe Chaim Lutzato and a book which had an immensely profound effect on Jewish life in the 300 years since it was written. You can see in the sheet in front of you the dates of Moshe Chaim Lutzato on the top line, 1707 to 1747. 300 years ago, there was this man who lived for a very short time, for 40 years. During that time, he wrote maybe more than 50, 50 Sfarim. He was a genius beyond our comprehension. Please come inside, take a text. genius beyond our comprehension. And of all the sforim that he wrote, this one little book, Masilati Sharim, became one of the Sifrei Yesot, one of the foundational books of the Jewish library, of Torah learning, or might even say it was, to borrow a non-Jewish word, it was canonized. <coughs> canonized by 300 years of Rabbonim, and teachers of Rosh Hashivas. And his reputation is something completely unique. What I'd like to do is first spend the first five, ten minutes speaking. Oh. I'm very honored. Uh, no, that's not my sheet. That's probably your sheet, actually. It's from the previous speaker. Okay. Yes, uh, I'd like to spend the first five or ten minutes speaking about the author and the historical context in which he wrote the Sefer, because it's relevant to the nature of the Sefer and the structure of what he was trying to achieve. So in the 18th century, was a period of time where, from a point of view of new ideas, in the whole world, it was the, one of the most remarkable, fruitful periods that we know of. During the 18th century, the foundations were laid for the French Revolution, the thinkers and the organizers of the French Revolution, the thinkers and the organizers of the American Revolution. Things were changing. People were looking at life differently in many respects. Isaac Newton in Cambridge was looking at science and maths differently. Things were happening which were going to change the world in, in a way that it was unre By the time the end of the 1700s came around, the world was unrecognizable at all for what it had been at the beginning of the 1700s. And in the Jewish world, this was happening as well. During the 1700s, we had the Baal Shem Tov and his teachings, which launched, of course, the whole 
phenomenon of Hasidus. During the, during the 1700s, we had the Vilna Gong and his launch of the Yeshiva world. During the 1700s, we had the Balatanya and the launch of, of Chabad and the Sefer, the Sefer of the Tanya. So many different major parts of the Jewish world that we're familiar with were born, so to speak, 250 to 300 years ago in the 18th century. Why all this was happening at that time, that's a subject for anybody who wants to write a doctorate on that, that's an interesting field. Why? What was it that fermented so much new ideas and new thoughts that throughout the world, that's what was going on? And in that world, Ramosha Chaim Lutato has a very significant place because he wrote a book, a small book, 26 short chapters, which really changed the way the Jewish life was going to be taught since then. And we're going to have a look at, at that safe a little bit. But I'd like to just make a comment on the way the safer came to be written, because please take a text. Because it almost didn't get written. It's one of those sorry which was written in a sense against the almost against the will almost of the author and against the spirit of the author himself. So Moshe Chaim Lutzata was born in Padova in Italy near Venice, 1707, and that's where he lived and that's where he learned and he taught. And already at a young age, in his teenage years, he was immensely charismatic, immensely brilliant, and immensely knowledge in the field of Kabbalah. He was a Kabbalist of the highest order, and he had mastered the entire uh, library of Kabbalistic thought, and he was teaching Kabbalah, and he attracted around him a group of followers, a group of uh, disciples who were very enthusiastic, enthusiastic disciples, please come inside, take a sheet, please, plenty of room. Please come inside, take a sheet. Nice to see you. Nice to see lots of familiar faces here uh, uh, this evening, and of course, lots of new faces. And uh, my wife and I just came on Aliyah six months ago uh, from London, so we are new arrivals. Uh, we live just around the corner here, and it's, uh, it's wonderful to be involved in learning and teaching Torah here in Yerushalayim. Uh, a dream come true. Hoyinu Kacholmen. There's also a bit of the Holoch Yelech Vochai that we have to be involved in, but the Hayinu Kachomim is the driving, uh, the driving force uh, uh, behind our life at the moment. And to be able to stand here and learn some Torah together is a, a wonderful privilege and uh, an enjoyment for me. So the Ramchal was the a, a dominant force in the world of Kabbalah, and he starts writing these sorry, which then become also, Sifrei Yisod become fundamental svarim for the students of Kabbalah. A sefer Adil Bamorim, a sefer Kalach Pischei Chachma, Kalach Kuflam and Chesmi, the 138 items of knowledge you need to know in order to delve into Chachma. Chachma being Kabbalah. So 138 chapters of introduction to the study of Kabbalah, Kalach Pischei Chachma. These svarim then be, have been since then classics in the field of Kabbalah. I'm afraid I can't explain to you what's written in them because it's not my field, 
and I'm not an expert in that field, and even if I was, I wouldn't tell you, but I'm not, so you'll have to believe me there. What happens is that it's an unfortunate for him that European Jewry, Orthodox European Jewry, and particularly the Orthodox European rabbinates, were living under a cloud of Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi had died only in the 1667, I think. So he, when he was writing, he's within 50 years of the tremendous disaster. And it's difficult to quantify the immense damage that Shabtai Tzvi did to the Emunat Chachamim of the entire European Orthodox Jewry. Because even the greatest Rabbonim were taken in, were fooled by Shabtai Tzvi as a, as, as a Shiach, and the confusion that he created and the, and the disastrous consequences of his teaching were beyond measure. And that cloud was still hovering over European Jewry. And not only that, but you would have thought that after he converted to Islam and then died, Sabbatinism would, would die out, but it didn't. There were still many thousands of what they call crypto Sabbateans, meaning people who were hidden followers of Shabtai Tzvi. So he died, so what? He'll come back again. He's the Mashiach. Mashiach can die and come back again. This is part of the game plan, almost, right? Of, Mashiach, of, of the Mashiach. And, and, and there were lots of Rabbonim around who were engaged in what can only be called a, a, a witch hunt against any Rav who had the slightest connection to Shabtai Tzvi. If they had ever once given a drosha where they praised him, where they'd ever once cited him, where they'd even once given a haskoma to a sefer, where in the sefer there was a reference to the Shabtai Tzvi, that was enough. It was a bit of a McCarthyism, for those of us old enough to know what that means, right? What was going on in the European uh, rabbinate at the time, there was a redifa. They were persecuting rabbonim and scholars who were doing things or living a life which could be interpreted as being a little bit similar to Shabtai Tzvi. And here was a man who was doing all the wrong things. He was teaching Kabbalah. That's a, that was already suspect. Because the main, the main tool that Shabtai Tzvi used to fool European Jewry was the abuse of Kabbalah. He would cite Kabbalistic sources, misinterpret them, misapply them, and claimed that he, under, he was a great Kabbalist, and teaching Kabbalah combined with being a great charismatic individual gathering around him followers, this was all pressed all the wrong buttons in the minds of the Rabbonim of Europe at the time. One particular role, Moshe Chagiz, his name was, who was the son of Rabbi Yaakov Chagiz in, in Yerushalayim, who was a, who was a Kanai, Ben Kanai, who was an a, a, a extremist. So they decided that, 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 that Ram Chal was suspect of Sabbateanism. And they were right different, and he had to leave Padua. And then he fled to Frankfurt, and, and even in Frankfurt, the Rabbonin there had heard about him, that he was a troublemaker. Of course, he wasn't a troublemaker, he was teaching Kabbalah. He was a charismatic leadership person. But he was again pursued and, and, and subject to defamation and a harem, and his writings were confiscated and buried. And, he, he had a very difficult time. So what, the extraordinary thing about Ramosh Chaim Tata is 
But he only lived to the age of 40. But up to the age of 30, all his writings were only Kabbalah. He was writing only Kabbalah. And then the Rabbanim in Europe said to him, look, we'll make a deal with you. He moved to Amsterdam. And in Amsterdam, they said, you can stay in Amsterdam and you can learn and teach, but not Kabbalah. Teach something else. Teach Torah. You're not allowed to teach Kabbalah. And guess what? He produced the Basilas Yeshua. He hadn't intended to produce a similar <coughs> and the Dera Hashem, these two Sforim, were produced in Amsterdam. After he stopped teaching Kabbalah, he produced these two Sforim, which then became guidebooks for Klal Yisrael since then, last 300 years, in the most profound way. He then went on Aliyah, the last three or four years of his life, and he died in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, um, very shortly after arriving here, only being two or three years in Israel, he died in a plague. And for those of you who know a bit about Kibre Tzadikim, he's buried in Tiberia. Anybody seen his kebab? Right, that's right. So there's, in, in Tiberia, there's one little place out of town up on a hill, which is the kebab of Rabbi Akiva. Right? And at this place of the kebab of Rabbi Akiva, there's only one other kebab there. And that's a Moshe Chaim Lutzata. Next time you go there, pay attention to it. And if you ask, why did they bury a Moshe Chaim Lutzata next to Rabbi Akiva? The answer is that in his lifetime, he said about himself, using his Kabbalistic knowledge, that he was a, a Mitzitz of Rabbi Akiva, or a Gilgul of Rabbi Akiva, and he came to atone for the first 40 years of Rabbi Akiva's life that he was an Amaharex, and then he died at the age of 40. When he died at the age of 40, it's time to thought, wait a minute, that must, that's, this is a serious business, if he was, if he claimed to be the Gilgul of Rabbi Akiva, and he died, to atone for the first 40 years, and he dies at the age of 40, they took him and they buried him next to Rabbi Akiva. That is the, the background <laughs> to the end of the life of this remarkable individual, but before he left this world, he left us with these two remarkable svarim. I'll only speak about one of them this evening, the Masilas Yeshon. And the Masilas Yeshon is not just another sefer, it's a new genre of Sifri Kodesh. It started off the whole genre of what later on came to be called Sifri Musa, right? And Musa is difficult to translate, actually, in English properly. In modern Hebrew, Musar often means ethics, doesn't it? Uh, Musar, Musari means ethical. But you can't translate Musa as ethics. The learning and teaching of Musa is not the learning and teaching of ethics. Right? Ethics is more of an academic study about the principles, epistemological di- dis- principles of how we can distinguish right from wrong, consequentialist <coughs> ethics, virtue ethics, different systems of thought, what criteria. Can- That's not Musa. Musa is much more similar to what we're familiar with today in the 20th and 21st century as self-improvement systems. Systems of how to improve your life. The Havdil Elef Abdallahs, Stephen Covey. Anybody read any Stephen Covey? If you haven't, you should. Stephen Covey writes a book, The Seven Habits right, of Effective Living or something like that, right? Isn't it? Sorry? Effective people, seven habits of effective people, and it's a Musa book. It's a book about how to improve your life, 
how to get your priorities straight, how to train yourself to put first things first, how to be proactive and not reactive. These are books about how to live a more quality life and not just to react to the environment around you, but to set your goals and set your priorities and work towards them in a systematic way. This is the Masilas Yesharim. This is what he created within the Torah world. And he did it in the most profound way, so much so that the Vilna God, who was not a man who was given to compliment many sorry or many people, the Vilna God said about the Masilas Yesharim, there's not a single word to the Masilas Yesharim, which is superfluous. Every word in the Masilas Yesharim can be learned for Eon. Why did he use this word? Why did he write it this way? Every word in the Masilas Yesharim was seen as containing uh, great uh, levels of, of depth and, and understanding. And what he does in the Masilas Yesharim, and that's the title of my talk this evening, is 10 Stages of Spiritual Growth. So if you have a quick look at your sheets, he starts off by saying, in the introduction to the book, we have a sheet, more sheets. Everyone should have a sheet. He starts off in his introduction by saying, I'm not going to tell you in this book anything you don't already know. Which is what I say to my kids when I want them to listen to me a bit more carefully. But it's a bit of a, uh, I'm not going to tell you something you don't already know. I'm just going to tell you things that you know. Why does he say that? Because he's addressing, the book is addressed to Torah knowledgeable audience. This is not a safer address to the Hamon Am. This is addressed to people who know their Torah, who know their learning to understand what, what, how Gemara works and how Medrash works and how Halacha works. And what he's saying is, it's not enough to know Halacha and to know Gemara and to know Midrashim and to know Jewish philosophy. A person needs to have a system by which he can work on himself and develop a self-reflective and self-critical mechanism where you are able to identify within yourself what midot and what thoughts and what ideas are going to promote your yahadut, your, your avodat Hashem, and which ideas are going to be a problem for you. And of course, I think it's obvious to everybody that a person can be a tremendous genius, even a tremendous Talmud Chacham, tremendously knowledgeable, right? And can even be a great leader and a great thinker and a great uh, individual in many ways, but if he has certain personality flaws, if, for example, he's very particular about his covet, and his covet is too important to him, and then he writes something, and then later on he realizes he made a mistake, but, but his covet won't allow him to admit that he's made a mistake, he can destroy his whole life and destroy his whole community. Not because he's lacking knowledge, but because he hasn't identified the flaws in his own personality and he hasn't worked on them. And this is true equally in Torah knowledge and academic knowledge, that simply having knowledge, says Ramchal, is not a guarantee that you're an Ovid Hashem. You might end up being an extremely knowledgeable, dangerous individual because you can't control your ka'as, you can't control your temper, because you can't control your tav or your excessive indulgences in life, all sorts of things, right? You might have a problem with gaiva, with arrogance, all these issues 
right, are, are topics which the Bacillus Yashorim takes and systematizes it in the most remarkable way. Probably the biggest single chiddush of the Bacillus Yashorim is the systematic way in which all these different ideas are put in order. And that's what he does is, he take, have a look at the first paragraph here, he brings a, a bracer in Avodah Zorah, Motsosi Lechachomim, the Perek Lefnei Edehim, that's the Avodah Zorah, Vazel Shodim Ikan, Omar Apinchas Ben Yoim, one of the early Tanoim. And here he brings what is basically a sunah. It's a ladder of different levels. And these are levels of, not levels of knowledge, they're levels of personality development, spiritual growth. He starts off Torah, maybe. So first of all, he starts off with Torah. In other words, he's addressing people who are learning, who have learned and are learning. He's not, he's not addressing an audience who is ignorant. He says, you've learned Torah. But Torah should bring Lidei Zahirus, that's the first one. Zerizus is the second one. Zerizus maybe is in the Kios. The Kios maybe. Can translate, please? Can I translate? See, when my wife comes along to my shiurim, I always get a little bit of uh, comments from the floor. Um, but okay, so Zahirus, Zahirus translates as avoidance of the negative. That's what Zahir means, to be careful, to avoid to doing Averus, basically. Avoiding doing Averus, even subtle Averus. Right, so he goes into the subtleties. He says, everybody knows that you can't steal, right? But how many people who are employed by the day or by the hour know they're not allowed to waste their employer's time? And if they waste time while they're being paid by the hour or by the day, that's Geneva. He goes into subtle, everyone knows you're not allowed to, to lie, but how many people, when they sell an item, they exaggerate or they misrepresent it a little bit? He goes into the subtleties of Averus. And Zahirut becomes a very careful examination of, of a meticulous uh, observance uh, of halacha. You might say, well, that's an obvious thing to start with. Of course, we have to start keeping the halacha. Before you get into spiritual growth, you have to keep the halacha. I'd like to just mention in parenthesis that one of the uh, um, one of the disasters of the, of the Shabbatai Tzvi era was a certain type of what's called antinomianism. In other words, the Shabtai Tzvi taught that the halacha as we know it isn't applicable anymore. He was teaching that the halacha, he brought misrepresented and misquoted sources from Kabbalah which suggested that once you're in the Tkufat of Yemot HaMashiach, the halacha is actually suspended or it's changed. And therefore, keeping halacha is something which is not relevant anymore, and you can do uh, all sorts of crazy things. And on the contrary, he used to find cab- perverted Kabbalistic explanations of why Dafka doing Averus was a way of finding the Kedusha within the Tumor, which one could somehow uh, release. And uh, he, he, he perverted the minds of millions of Jews with this what's called antinomianism, and so the Mesilas Yasharim possibly, I think, has in mind that before he can teach anything, he has to lay to rest that he's not part of that school of thought. That the first thing you need to do is zihirut, meaning every detail of halacha is binding upon you, and you need to be extremely careful about not to, uh, avoiding all, all isurim or prohibitions. The next stage is zirizus, 
which is, so again, Zerizus is easily misinterpreted. Zerizus, people sometimes think, means doing things quickly, being Zeriz. Okay? And doing things quickly is not always a good idea. Right? Because you do things quickly, you don't do them properly. But he doesn't mean Zerizus in terms of speed. He means Zerizus in terms of passion. For him, Zerizus means to do things passionately, to do things believe shalom. And to be able, the main point of, of the, the Zerizus aspect is not in prohibitions, but in mitzvahs. The mitzvahs that you're doing, you should be doing with more Zerizut, with more Zerizut meaning, with more passion, with more kavana. And, and, and the main enemy in, in, in Zerizus is a natural tendency to atzlut. So he deals with atzlut in a way which is actually quite uncomfortable when you read it because everybody has a problem to a certain extent with Atzlut. What does Atzlut mean? Atzlut means apathy, laziness. Yes, I know this is the right thing to do. Of course I should go and visit this person. Of course I should go to Sheila. You know what? I can't be bothered. If you knew the phrase, I can't be bothered, he certainly would have put it into the Sinasi Sharing. I can't be bothered. Laziness. Atzlut for him is one of the great uh, problems in life which stops people from achieving what they could achieve spiritually is probably one of the greatest, one of the biggest obstacles which he deals with in the chapter on, on, on Zerizus. So it's Zahirus care in Halak, avoiding, avoiding uh, prohibitions, Zerizus doing mitzvahs passionately, and then he gets into Makius, which means literally a purity. And that's already purity from Midas, right? That there are certain classical, uh, the, the dark side of human nature. All human nature has within it certain elements of Kinnah, Taiva, and Kovod, meaning people can become obsessed with their own stature, right? People can, can be obsessed, obsessed with, with jealousy, and that can color everything they're doing. Their whole life is driven by jealousies whole life is driven by COVID issues. That's, uh, these, these are the first three. Now I want to tell you that the first three, Zahirus, Zerizus, and Nikias, the Marisha Chaim says, these are the first three steps of this ladder. This is something for everybody to deal with. Everybody needs to read these three first three chapters. And this is, these are issues which affect every human being, and, and, and without, without which one can't progress um, in one's Avodah Hashem. The other seven, really, are of a higher order. And he, he uses the following language, he says, there is, uh, Chazal used the concept of a tzaddik. Now the truth is, we're used to the word tzaddik, meaning a person of immense, uh, in, in sort of a Hasidic way with the word tzaddik is being used. Now, Hasidish tzaddik is, is a great, uh, a great wise man, a great, a great rebbe, a leader. But the tzaddik in, in the language of Chazal, tzaddik is simply somebody who is shomer mitzvot. A shomer, a proper shomer mitzvot is a tzaddik, someone who is living a life according to the Ratzon Hashem, according to the, uh, the, 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 the prohibitions, the isurim, and the mitzvahs, and, and is doing it uh, properly without a kinnor, taiva, kavod. These are this person is a tzaddik. After that, once he gets into stage number four, which is pre-shut. Okay, so pre-shut is already a whole new world. So I just want to tell you, anyone who thinks they can pick up the safe from the Sinatra Shem and read through it, 
you will find that actually the first few bits are something you can, you can deal with. You can somehow apply your life. As you go from one rung of the ladder to the next, you suddenly realize that you're actually uh, out, out in space. That we're de dealing with people who are uh, living a different sort of life. Once you get into precious, this is already, he, sa he says, a chosset. A chosset is someone, so I want you to hear a few interesting uh, lines, uh, which maybe I will read if you've got the text in front of you. So he says here, you can see here I've divided the sheet into the tzaddik, that's on page one. If you turn over the page, the chosset is already a higher level of human being who is already engaged in Avodah Hashem on a, on, on, on a higher level. And then there is the third level, which is the Kadosh, right, which is already something um, very difficult for us even to grasp what that means. And I had the good fortune to learn Torah from some of the great Musa masters of the previous generation. Um, so I heard Shurim from Rav Shlomo Volber, who was one of the great Musa experts of the earlier, previous generation. Also from Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, I heard Shurim, and also from uh, Rav Yitzhak These three were all three people who were of immense stature, but for whom the learning and teaching and understanding of Musa was very, very much center at the center of what they wanted to teach. They weren't just teaching yeda. They weren't just teaching data. They didn't just learn Baba Kama and Baba Basra and, and, and learn what Tosfa says, what Rambam says. You needed, alongside of your, of your yeshiva learning, you needed to be educated. And to be educated meant to learn Musa. And to learn Musa meant that you had to develop a self-critical faculty to identify in yourself what your shortcomings were and how to deal with them. And the textbook for that is Musa So many times in my life I had conversations, I had shiurim with, with some of the Gedele Yisrael of the previous generation, and these lines out of Musa were cited uh, and referred to. One of the interesting, um, if you like, uh, central ideas here, if you have a look on page one uh, where it says the tzaddik, right? So he starts off with probably the most famous sentence in the whole book. A sentence, I just want to tell you incidentally that there's so much been written on the Masilas Yashari in the last 300 years, it's beyond belief. And certainly since the internet, uh, if you can go onto the internet or the YouTube and you can find thousands of shiurim on the Masilas Yashari, on each line, on each word, what it mean and how to do it and what it means and how it works and different different interpretations of what he had in mind, etc. It's a short, small book, but it has sparked off the most remarkable uh, quantity of very fascinating understandings of the nefesh ha'odom, how the human psyche, how it works, and what Avodah Hashem uh, can be for it. So he starts off here, the tzaddik, in heavy type, I'm giving you the first two lines of, of chapter 1. If you come away from this year and you've only heard this one line from the Silas Yisharim, this is the line you should hear. Yesod HaChasidus, the foundation of Hasidus. This opening two words, incidentally, has led many people to, to conclude that actually the goal of the whole book is to explain Hasidus. 
everything before Hasidus is just a preamble, and everything afterwards, after it, is really just a, uh, um, a uh, an addition. But the, the heart of the book is what does it mean to be a Hasid, to live a life to go beyond what is required halakhically on the individual. So he says that Yisoda Hasidus, the root of all perfect Abudat Hashem, that it should become barur. First of all, you get clarity what your priorities are, what your goal is. The hit amet, and you have to understand the ultimate truth of Abodat Hashem. This is it. What is your chiyuv in your world? And what's interesting about this first line is the way he personalizes it. In other words, he comes back to this later on. He doesn't say ma ba'olam. What is man's duty in this world? It's each man and woman, given their particular circumstances and talents and assets and whatever they've got, have a particular chovah ba'olam. How are you going to figure out what your chovah is in this world? Because has put you into this world for some purpose. How are you going to figure out what it is? So he says the answer is 26 chapters of Masil HaShishari. You know, if you work on it for the next 10 years, so these 26 chapters, you'll get a bit closer. You'll get one inch closer to finding out how to how to live a life according to And if you get this right, it will affect every moment of everything you ever do in your life. Every project, every relationship, every every enterprise, anything you want to do will be affected if you manage to clarify so he goes on, I'm just going down, I'm getting to the end of this paragraph. Uh, the next paragraph starts with the Hine. You say, Hine Inyan has Zahirus. Can you see that? So he says, yeah, I've underlined the word Zahirut. Right, that's his first rung of the ladder. What does Zahirut require? Shehiyah Odom Nizab Amasa Binyon of Koloma Mit Bonne. So for him, the biggest, if you like, <coughs> the biggest, um, Contrast between different types of people in the beginning of the Sefer is there are two types of people. There is somebody who is mitbonen on his life, somebody who reflects on himself in his life, who is thinking about what he wants to achieve in his life spiritually. And then there is what is the opposite of mitbonen for him? Look at the next word. One of the frequent recurring themes of the whole Sefer is human beings have a tendency to live a life of herigon. Herigon means we're living on what you might call autopilot. We're doing what we're doing because that's what we do, and that's what we've always done, and that's what my friends do, and that's what my family does, and we, we do it this way, and that's herigon. Herigon is what, we're, what we are, uh, our habits, the habits that, we've, that we have the habits, how we respond, when someone criticizes us, how do we respond? So he says, wait a minute, if somebody criticizes you, that's not an opportunity to respond, it's an opportunity to be mitbonen. Maybe there's some truth in this criticism, maybe there's some way that you can absorb, some way you can absorb the criticism and grow from it, right? Maybe there's some way that you can get past your own ego and, and, and listen carefully to another person's opinion. We're not listening to each other properly, he says on a few occasions. 
people have got things to tell us. Friends tell us things, and maybe they've got something to tell us. Maybe there's some emissive to it. But you'll only know that if you're a mitbonet, not if you live a life of Ergel. So for him, this is the, this is the kita alaf. Kita alaf is, are you living a life of reflection? Right? In the non-Jewish culture, there is this line, the unexamined life is not worth living. Anybody heard that line? It's attributed to Socrates, although I never really saw it in the writings of Plato anywhere, but it's attributed to Socrates that he said the unexamined life is not worth living. Whether Socrates said that or not, I don't know, but the Ramchal said it. And that's much more important for us. Like Moshe Chaim Vitaza said, a life of Hergel is simply a life, an unthinking life. So how are you supposed to develop this mechanism of Lehitzbonem? The answer is, I'm going to teach you how to do it. And that's what the book is. The book is a, a textbook teaching us how to go step by step Lehitzbonem, to reflect on our lives, to reflect on every aspect uh, of, of, of what we're doing. And this is um, his, his real uh, first, his first major um, uh, assumption in, in the writing on, on, on Zahirus. Zerizus, I mentioned you before, I've got the last four lines on page one. So he, he speaks about laziness and apathy as being part of Teva Ha'odom. By nature, human nature is kaved. What does it mean, kaved? You're not telling us to go on a diet, which wouldn't be a bad idea sometimes, speaking to myself. But kaved means feeling heavy, feeling you don't want to move. Inertia, I think it's called in English. Inertia, I'm here, so I'll remain here. And even though there are important things to do elsewhere, I can't be bothered. The atzmut, which is, he says, it's not an evil, it's not an evil part of a human being, it's a natural part of human nature. And unless you're willing to, be re- to reflect on it and realize there are things that are very important for you to do and you're just not doing them because you can't be bothered, unless you can get past that, you'll never get onto the next round of the ladder. So you have to work, he says, on this. Incidentally, he says, the Shalom is not a book to be read once. It's a book to read again and again and again and again and again until it clicks, right? Because he says you have to internalize it. Ideas here need to be internalized in order that a person can live that way. One of the great Musa um, uh, teachers of the previous generation, Rav Elia Lopian, some of you might have heard about the name of Elia Lopian, so Elia Lopian, so uh, I think he passed away in 1970. So I started yeshiva in 1968. And I was in the yeshiva in Kol Torah in And he was living the last few years of his life in Bayt Vagan in his son in laws house. And in the, in the afternoon, in the evening, before he used to come and dub in my room in Kol Torah. And in Kol Torah, half an hour before my room, there was a Musa say. Everybody sat down for half an hour before Myra and learned Musa. That was part of our daily, daily routine. And he used to come in for the Musa Seda. Couldn't see very well anymore. But he used to sit down and, and, he, would, and he would out loud say over by heart paragraphs, chapters of the Masilis He would just go over it again and again and again and again with a certain nigun. That that's what he did. 
That was he was teaching really a lot of lots of his writings are very beautiful. He was a great, great tzaddik. I can't resist telling you a small anecdote. Yes, he wasn't, he wasn't speaking to anybody. He was speaking to himself. Chanting, yes, that's right. He was he was chanting. He was reading the Masilas Yisharim, and he knew it off by heart. And he was just saying it over and over again. He was clearly he was clearly talking to himself. Please take the sheet. He, he was talking to himself, but he had in his in his mind, in his brain, even in his nineties, he had the text of the Masilas Yisharim that was on his on his hard disk, that was there for him to... I just want to... one very small memory that I've got, I, was at, I remember being at his Levaya in 1970. His Levaya was in, in Bayat Vagan. And uh, he, he was a, a remarkable tzaddik. And they gave a few espadim and the whole room, a couple of piscars, and you might know Bayat Vagan was absolutely jam-packed with thousands and thousands <coughs> of Yeshiva Bakrim who had come from all over for his Levaya. And they put up a little stage, there were one or two people who were giving, giving Hespadim. So we all heard Hespadim every now and again, and sadly, Hespadim are often very forgettable, if you know what I mean. That was after you heard it, you asked five minutes later what was said, you don't remember what was said. But there was one Hesper that I heard, which was the shortest Hesper I ever heard in my life, which I still remember today, um, quite a number of years later, since uh, 1970. So, so he was not given to sort of lengthy speeches. So he got up at this Hesperd and he said, you don't know, in Yiddish, he says, you don't know who we have lost. He said, five years ago, he says, I was ill. About himself, he said, I was ill. And Bashamayim, it was Paskind that I should die. Sort of thing you hear every day that somebody says publicly. So he said, How do I know this? And he gives a clap. I know these things. <coughs> and then he said, And it was only the Tfilis from Elia Lopian that saved my life. How do I know that? I know. And that was it. That was the end of the husband. He sat down. <laughs> and everybody was like standing, sitting there, standing there, open mouthed, you know, with his. It just dropped a little bit of a bombshell in his husband, and he gave everybody a sense of what he felt about Elliot Lopian's Tullus. But these were people for whom the Masilas Yisharim was a textbook of how they organized their spiritual life and the spiritual growth of their Talmudim. And um, these are, uh, as I say, the first three stages, Zahirus, uh, Zerizus, and, and the Kiyos. If you go over the page for a second, page number two, time is a bit short. So he says about the Chosid, first of all, you've got to know when you, when you see the word Chosid written, you have to get out of your natural associations with the word Chosid. This is, of course, written long before what we call the Hasidic movement. You know, these aren't Hasidim as a social movement. Hasid, this is pre-Balshentov. Right? This, this is, he's using the word Chassid in the same way as the Mishnah and the Gemara. Right? The Mishnah speaks about Hasidim or Rishonim and refers to the early Tanoi. Right? Early Tanoi, not Hasidim or Rishonim. Right? So the Chassid simply means somebody of extra special spiritual uh, um, uh, madrega, 
So he says, Lukashetistaka, but don't want to hear he says the chassid is somebody who lives a life of dveikus, where he does mitzvahs. Dveikus for him means doing mitzvahs lishma, doing mitzvahs without any ulterior motives, and going beyond what the halacha requires of a person. That the idea of of, of the chassid um, is to be able to live a life which is not. Which, which, of course, keeps every detail of halacha, but goes beyond that into an area of, for example, chesed. For him, chesed is a massive part of what Hasidus is about. But it's also, uh, I brought you here in the next paragraph, for Allah od ika shemi yesh bekavonas Hasidus, for who tovat hador, very interesting, to dedicate your life to tovat hador, each generation has got needs, and if you're able to plug into the needs of your generation, whatever they are, right? And the needs of the generation are, are, are you know, Rubin Tzorchei Amcha, right? Our, our need, the needs of Klali Shal are, are immeasurable. And everybody could, in some way, become somebody who is Rabin Tzrichim, in other words, who is needed by the community and communicate and can some way contribute to the community, that is already part of Hasidus. That's going beyond, you won't find that in the Mishnah Brewer, to do that. That is something which is uh, part uh, of Hasidus, and that takes us into what he calls uh, uh, Parishus. But Parishus already requires people to step back from the physical pleasures of this world. There's a certain undercurrent of what is called ascetism in themselves as well, that in order to live a truly spiritual life, one has to be able to moderate and minimize one's physical pleasures in this world. The truth is that in reality, most, um, most educators and most Musa teachers took the view that certainly later generations and our generation uh, uh, precious and the later stages of Masilat Sharim are, are, are worth learning, but only worth learning in the sense that to, to know what great tzaddikim look like. I remember one of my uh, teachers, Rukhadalia Eisenman, the friend of Rachel, was the Mashkiach in Kaltaira, was also a great uh, expert in the Musa uh, uh, genre. So he, uh, <coughs> he used to say there's a difference between learning Musa and learning Hashkof. Both are important. Musa is where you learn certain ideas which you can then internalize and apply to yourself and make part of your spiritual growth. Hashkofa are ideas which you know about, which at least will inform you about how great tzaddikim live. It's important to know how do great tzaddikim live. And great tzaddikim do live with precious and Tara and Anova and these higher levels of Madrega. Don't forget the last run of the ladder is, if you have a look at the last rung of the ladder on page one, is Ruach HaKodesh. Are with me, ladies and gentlemen? So, uh, if, one makes it, if one makes one's way, you can see the first paragraph on page one takes you through all ten rungs of the ladder. And the last, the last is Anavo, Yerashait, Kedusha. You see, I've underlined them. Can you see that in the first paragraph? In the first paragraph on page one, I've underlined ten words. Okay? So, these are the ten rungs of his ladder. Starts with Zahirus, right? Care not to violate the prohibition. Zerizus, doing the mitzvahs with passion. Nikius, 
being able to remove traces of jealousies and 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 uh, uh, and covet. And then he goes on to precious, which means taking a distance from the physical world, abstinence, tahara, which is even greater levels of purity, chasidus, anava, yiraschait, kedusha, and ruach hakodesh. So this is actually a manual. If anybody here fancies uh, ruach hakodesh, rabbeisai. Uh, uh, you might think that you can make it through this book and arrive at Ruach HaKodesh. The answer is, if you make it to stage two or three, you're doing well. You're doing well. Uh, nobody really can make it much past that, but it's worth reading. What, how do great tzaddikim live? And how do they uh, uh, manage their lives according to uh, higher, uh, high, higher principles of, of um, uh, spiritual life? I'll just end up with just one comment about maybe a critical view that was uh, taught by some of the Rabbanim in the last uh, 300 years, and that is that the Masilat Yishorim encourages us to be too self-critical, and that being too self-critical can damage people, that you become too obsessed with, am I motivated by jealousy, am I motivated by God, am I too lazy? I mean, you, you get too involved in self-criticism, and certainly for people of a tendency to be perfectionists, self-criticism can drive you completely round the bend. And therefore there were great Tabin who discouraged get, delving too deeply into self-criticism. But the truth is, the Masonic Yishorim doesn't need to be uh, um, uh, learn, doesn't need to be adopted as an all or nothing system. In the Messiah's Yisharim, there are ideas for every single member of Klal Yisrael how to upgrade our spiritual life. By being a little extra careful of Zahirus, by being a little bit more passionate and focused on the mitzvahs that we're doing, by being a little bit more critical when we feel we're just not doing things we should be doing because we're a bit lazy, these things are relevant to everybody. And this is what the Ramchal, this was a gift the Ramchal gave us in the last few years of his life. He gave us this gift, and this is uh, the Sefer that I've hoped I've given you a little taste of it. But as I say, there are people who have given hundreds of shiurim on the Masilas Yisharim, so I've really just given you the tip of the iceberg, and I wish you all a Mu'adim Simcha and a Chag Sameach, and I've enjoyed meeting you all this evening. Thank you.